Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Valley Beit Midrash would like to thank the Jewish Book Council for their support in bringing Rabbi Yerim to our community. We'd also like to thank our event co-sponsor, the Halil Jewish Student Center at Arizona State University. Please enjoy the program. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, It's great to be here on a nice, uh, cool summer day. Um, Thank you, Shmuley, um, for welcoming me. And so uh, I want to say a couple things about Debbie. So I got to have lunch with Debbie today, which was amazing. And uh, if you don't know, Debbie is like quickly becoming like a legend in the Hillel world. Um, There are a lot of uh, er, more early career female professionals who are looking towards Debbie as a role model. And just like all of the older guys, it tends to be guys, it's, um, are, are also like, talk, like there's a lot of talk about the amazing work that Debbie's doing. And she's chairing the Hillel International Global Assembly, which is like the kind of a plum job. You don't have to really do anything, but you get to show up. And, <laughs> and I have two phone calls next week. It's, um, but it's, it's the honor that's given to like the person that Hillel International wants to showcase as like the rock star. And in addition to all of that, Debbie and I worked together for seven years. She, actually, you were the first person I interviewed. Um, yeah, it was the first real interview I'd ever done. And um, there are a lot of pages of this book that Debbie could have written. Um, a lot of the models, I would say like the model that I talk about in the book really came from two places. One um, was a kind of serendipitous set of conversations I had my first year in Hillel at Northwestern in 1998. And while I was writing the book, I went back and looked at my binder from that year, and I was like, oh, man. Like I, the, the core of many parts of the book was there already in 1998. I felt like maybe I wasn't so creative after all, because like, you know, when I was 21, some of these ideas were already here. But um, a lot of the practical stuff is stuff that Debbie and I worked on together and succeeded and failed together. Spent many hours in Houston Hall trying to figure out how to build a new type of, of Jewish organization. So um, what I'm hoping to do tonight, so it's great to have you here. It's a little nerve wracking to have Debbie here in the audience. What I want to do is I want to I have fun. I want to provoke a little bit. Um, I feel like if you got me, even if, even if I'm only here for like an hour, an hour and a half, like I should, I'm going to try to push some buttons because that way it'll be more fun. Um, and, and so I think that by playing with these ideas of what the Jewish future might look like, we're going to come up with more creative ideas than, than just kind of walking a straight line. And I want to do a mix of like some real life stories that are anonymous and some theory and then some practical stuff. Because I think one of the things that's unique about the book is that uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one other autobiographical piece because it's a small audience. I was really nervous to write it. I, there was a huge amount of imposter syndrome that, that, that at least I went through when I was writing the book. 
And so one of the things I did is I wrote it before I read all of the other books out there on the market. There's like, I don't know, 30 some odd books dealing with organizational transformation in the Jewish community and synagogue transformation, Issa Aaron and Stephen M. Cohn and Arnie Eisen, Ari Kelman. I, I, I read, all, and, and obviously uh, Ron Wolfson and um, Relational Judaism. I, I didn't read them until after because I was afraid if I read them, I'd feel like I had no voice. And so I wrote this, and then I went back and read all those books, and I actually felt like this is, there is some real differences here. One of the main differences is that it's written from a practitioner standpoint, not a researcher standpoint. So even though there's good theory, hopefully it stimulates the intellect, um, I'm a realist. Like I have to run an organization. I have to keep the lights on. So there's a pragmatic nature to the ideas here also, which I think is, is helpful. So I want to start with two stories. The first story I want to start with, I'll tell you, uh, well, since it's a podcast, we'll, we'll call her Samantha. She's Samantha in the book. She was a real student at Penn. Samantha grew up in a place where there were a lot of Jews, but she had no Jewish friends growing up. And she didn't do all the things that American Jews do. So like, what are the two things that American Jews do more than anything else? Go to camp in Israel. No, no. Wait, so what are the numbers? Camp in Israel are, are pretty low. Like, 30%, I feel like maybe something like that. I don't remember offhand. Bar mit so what percentage of American Jews have a bar about mitzvah ceremony? What would you guess? 51%. Only So think of all the people that you've seen have bar about mitzvahs. That represents the top 51% of the most institutionally involved Jews in America. It's, it's a little bit of a trick question to ask, but like ritually, it's a Passover Seder and Hanukkah candles, both of which hover around 80%, it might be 79 and 83%, but it's in that vicinity. A percent of American Jews have some kind of Seder and light Hanukkah candles at least one night. Um, but actually, our, our joke is, you know, what American Jews do more than anything else is actually go to college. So it's, it's well into the high 80s percent of Jews go to college. So that's like one of our Hillel pitches. But so this woman, I almost said her real name, Samantha, didn't do any of this stuff, right? So she came to Penn. And she had no Jewish resume, right? So she maybe had a Seder every few years. Maybe she had a pass, uh, lit Hanukkah candles every few years. And I ended up meeting her through a birthright trip. Debbie, you might have been actually co-staff on the trip. And she got like really turned on. Um, and we connected her to something called the Jewish Renaissance Project, which I'm going to talk about in the second half of the talk. And she got like really into Judaism. And she was kind of like, you know, a shallow sophomore in college, 5'10", blonde, in the coolest sorority on campus. And she started hosting Shabbat dinners for her friends. She started giving tzedakah every morning when she woke up as a way of curating a sense of appreciation in her life because she felt like she had this privileged life and it was never enough. And so she wanted more. She started reading Jewish books. She was contemplating keeping kosher. And then she said to me, I want to go to this conference. I'm not going to tell you the name of the conference because I don't want to disparage it either. It's a great conference. It is an incredibly warm and welcoming conference, and one of their taglines is something along the lines of, like, every single kind of Jew is welcome. So we, I said, I don't think you're ready for this conference. It's really Jewy. She said, I'm Rabbi Mike. I am ready for this conference. I said, OK. So we, we trucked off this conference with a group of 15 or 20 students. Saturday night, she is bawling her eyes out. I don't understand anything that is going on in this place. Is it the Hebrew? She said, no. I, they translate everything. It's not the issue. I don't understand the way people dress. I don't understand the way they talk. I don't understand the way they presume familiarity. Who wears socks and Birkenstocks, right? And she, there you go. She said, this is like a heartbreaking thing. This is true. She said, I thought that being Jewish was about a certain set of values and a certain set of rituals to make my life better. But if being Jewish means I have to grow up to be these people, I don't want to be Jewish. Again, she's a sophomore in college, right? Her prefrontal cortex wasn't fully formed. 
But what she meant was, this wasn't as cool as she wanted it to be. She didn't understand Jewish geography. All the things that make us feel naturally at home made her feel like an alien. Right? So I don't know about you, but my guess is most of us in this room, if you got dropped at some random conference, you were trapped in an airport overnight, you'd find like the other Jews in the room and start schmoozing. Right? And you'd say, oh, let's kibitz, right? And like everyone, everyone knows we're all in on the joke. Right? Oh, where's your family from? Poland. Oh, I'm from Lithuania. Right? Like we have this, it's that conversation. Samantha didn't understand any of that stuff. She didn't have that. So here's the question. Here's a person who is Jewish, who wants to be more actively Jewish. How do you get her from where she is into the established Jewish community? I, I, I don't know. But what it raised in my mind in those early days was the sense that maybe there's something wrong with this notion of trying to get them to be like us. And maybe we have to um, find ways to help these people be Jewish on their own terms. Maybe they'll come back over here, but maybe they won't. Because ultimately, I gotta be honest with you, like if Samantha ends up, by the way, um, I saw her two years after she graduated Penn, and she said, oh, Rabbi Mike, I don't do anything Jewish anymore. I was like, come on, like you were involved in, in this JRP thing for like three years, what does that mean? She's like, well, I don't go to synagogue. I don't belong to a synagogue. Great. I didn't ask you if you belong to a synagogue. She said, well, I don't do the, the young leaders thing in the Federation. Great. I didn't ask you if you're involved in Federation. What do you do that's Jewish? And she said, well, actually, it's the first time in my life that I've had Jewish friends. She worked at American Express. She had all these Jewish friends. She was going to Shabbat dinners once a month. Then she started hosting them. Then she moved to Australia. And she hosts Shabbat dinners now for her non-Jewish colleagues at Amex in Australia. So I gotta be honest with you, like ideally I would love her to be part of our community, but if at the end of the day she ends up reading Jewish books, living by Jewish values, lighting Shabbos candles, giving tzedakah and calling it tzedakah, it's really not a failure, right? There's lots of Jews who belong to institutions who don't live vibrant lives like that, right? So I, that's one thing. This is a trend that we have to, to deal with. Second story I wanna tell you. Part of a, a strategic plan for a large organization this is a story about how hard it is to change. So the consultants who are leading the strategic plan wanted to bring in conscious disruptors, people from the outside who are gonna make everybody uncomfortable, maybe like what I'm doing tonight with you, um, so that they could think in a bigger and bolder way. So it was, um, it was about 150 conservative rabbis in the basement of JTS, which used to be the Beit Midrash, right? Heschel and Kaplan, all these famous people were there. Um, and the one non-rabbi in the room is this guy named Adam Simon, who he invited to come. And Adam gets up, he worked for the Schusterman Foundation for, for many years, and he said, what if I were to tell you that there is no such thing as a Jew anymore, there's no such thing as the Jewish community, there's no such thing as a Jewish institution, and there's no such thing as a Jewish leader. And the whole room, everyone's jaw just dropped. He said, of course there's Jews, right? But the, the boundary of who is a Jew and who's in and who's out is more complicated than it's ever been in the history of the world. There's a, a woman that I profile in the book who's actually a composite of two students, but you have, um, at Hillel now, uh, there are all sorts of Asian students and black students who are Jewish. Their parents converted, they converted, they were adopted. Jews don't look the way Jews used to look, right? Are you patrilineal Jewish, are you matrilineal Jewish? The whole thing is more complicated than it's ever been. And so this notion of the simplicity of you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, what box do you check? It is more of a fluid identity world that we live in than a simple binary choice. There's no such thing as the Jewish community. We know that there never was the Jewish community, right? But at the same time, there 
there are networks, there are all sorts of little composite pieces, even in the synagogue, which I'm sure is a wonderful community. It's really a network of communities, more than one single community, right? Or am I, am I, I don't mean to point the finger at you guys, but. But I would say, like, I don't know, we, even, even in the, at Penn Hill, even in the Orthodox community, like, it's, when we talk about one community, it, it hurts because there are black hat kids who are at Penn Hillel and there's kids who are like modern Orthodox but eat out and don't keep kosher anymore and are having sex with their girlfriend, right? And like they're all consider themselves kind of Orthodox but they're not really one community. There's, there's cliques, there's social networks. When he said there's no such thing as a Jewish institution, it, we're shrinking. What's the rate of affiliation among American Jews? Would you say 85%? No, 85% non affiliated. Non affiliated. Right. So over the course of, your enti- of, of an entire lifetime, 31% of American Jews belong to a synagogue. And the current number is like about 20%, 22%. The current affiliation rate with other organizations like APAC or JCC is 18%. And there's like 90% overlap with synagogue affiliation for those Jews. Right? So the, the idea of the Jewish institution being the central address. In, an, in American Jewish life, when we are not in a crisis, when we don't need protection, when we don't need to rescue somebody, is, is a fading notion. And that's why federation annual campaigns are going down across the board. That's why affiliation rates at synagogues are going down across the board. That's why the number of kids who show up at Hillel is going down across the board. Institutions are not the primary locus of Jewish life anymore. And there's no such thing as a Jewish leader. So you told me you graduated from JTS in the 80s. I don't know what it was like in the 80s, but even in the 2000s, we entered JTS wanting to give sermons, to be leaders from the front, to give answers, to fix Jews. That's not what leadership is in America today. It's not what good CEOs do, right? You lead from the middle. You lead from behind. Your power as a leader today is to convene, not to decide. Part of what I think the debate about intermarriage and the conservative movement scares me a little bit because I have my own personal feelings. But, but from the perspective of my book, it makes me laugh. Because who cares whether or not a conservative rabbi says you can get married or not? Jews are getting married without rabbis. That's actually the trend. People are getting ordained online. Um, there's even places in, in America now that are training lay people to do weddings, like six to nine in Washington, DC. Their classes sell out every time they offer them to train to do a lay-led wedding. So it's funny that conservative rabbis think that they're really the gatekeeper, right? They're not, because all of this stuff has changed. So here's the, back to the story. So a room of 125 whatever conservative rabbis, everyone was like really inspired when Adam got done speaking. And then there was like ideas started flowing about like what this means about how we have to change synagogues and change the nature of leadership and change the nature of the rabbinate. And, and then 15 minutes, the energy got lower. And 30 minutes out, the energy got lower. And 45, it got lower. And then by the time it ended, everyone was in a defensive posture. And Adam left the room, and people said nasty things about him behind his back, for real. And I think what that shows is here's a group of people who want to change, who know they need to change, who are paying consultants exorbitant amount of money to help them change, and they were open for like 15 minutes. And I'm, I'm the same as that. I assume everyone in the room is the same as that, right? It's scary to grapple with holding on to the things that we love and that we care about and to make our Jewish lives thrive and figuring out ways to adapt, because the world is changing, right? So that's what the book is about. The book is meant to be a positive, aspirational guidebook for how you can do both, right? I wanted to avoid binary thinking. So I'm not 
here, and I don't believe in my heart that we should trash the organized Jewish community, and the, the denomination should die, and the synagogue should die, and the federation should die. That, that's like fantasy thinking. The reality is, and we know this, right? The legacy Jewish organizations do incredibly beautiful, meaningful work every single day. It may not always be sexy. Right? The people that you visit in the hospital, the people that you help in times who are struggling, the home that synagogues offer people who don't have other homes, the moment you create at a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or some other life, these are incredible things. Even if synagogues aren't the sexy startups right, that like, you know, the foundational world wants to sing praises on. And federations do amazing work. They take care of, of elderly poor Jews in communities where that's not a sexy thing to give money to. Right? So we need those things. They can't go away. But at the same time, that can't be the answer for every single Jew if we already know now that about 70% of Jews don't affiliate. So the most innovative thing that a synagogue does or a federation does or a JCC does or a Hillel does still is only innovative for about 30% of American Jews. That is, we gotta hold on to that. So like in Philadelphia, this new rabbi came to town, Eric Yanoff. Everybody thinks that the solution to every problem is hire a guy like Eric Yanoff. Because what happened is he went to the synagogue and it grew and all the other synagogues on the main line in Philadelphia are shrinking. But guess what? It's actually the entire pie is shrinking and he just took a bigger piece of the pie. No one really won because everyone's focused on the 30% or whatever it really is, right? It might be smaller than that. And so when you think about our organizations, when we think about new educational initiatives, new prayer initiatives, new social justice, it doesn't matter what it is. Anything within the kind of pantheon of Jewish possibilities, the way that we know how to do business, generally speaking, is how to reach to, the, to these 30%. And I think part of that is about relationship. Good, you guys, we're gonna get interactive. I'm gonna talk for a little bit and then we'll get interactive. Are there any like reactions that people wanna throw out at this point? I'm happy to pause and take a little bit, yeah. Um, it's an obvious Jewish phenomenon. Would you say it's a US phenomenon too? Are others such as Catholic and other um, religions going to a similar? Yes. So um, it's, a, it's a perfect segue actually. Um, so I'm, I want to throw out a couple other statistics. I, I don't know about other countries. I, I, I don't even want to like wade into that water. But I think really a very important point is it's not a Jewish thing at all. It is an American cultural thing. So the, um, basically, one, you know, there's, there's, have people heard of the book Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam? My theory is everyone quotes Bowling Alone and no one's read it. I have not read the whole book. I read, I read select pieces that I needed to like get some good quotes of the book. Um, but he, and his idea has been argued about, but there is some truth that involvement in community organizations has declined dramatically in the second half of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century. Um, in every way that you can measure, people are basically more disconnected than they were, spend less time outside, spend less time with friends. But it's not just that. It's, um, in 1952, 70% of Americans watched I Love Lucy. Think about that for a minute. 70% of Americans, seven out of 10 people, watch the exact same show at the exact same time on the same channel with the same commercials. Talk about institutions. I, I don't know what network it was on, but it was NBC, CBS, and ABC. They had total control over the entire television offerings to the entire American public, and I Love Lucy had 70% of that market. But watch what happens, it, like, it just drops off. MASH, final episode of MASH, 45% of Americans. Final episode of Friends, 18% uh, of Americans. Final episode, and then you can't literally find any, except for the Super Bowl, you can't find any show that draws a real audience. Final episode of Lost, which I thought was like a big show, 6%. 
Final episode of Breaking Bad, 3%. So what I think it means is that we have moved from a world of macro communities to a world of micro communities. And, we, and there's marketing research that shows this also, like a hit shoe for Nike in the 80s had dramatically higher market share than what's considered a hit shoe today. There's a lot more variety of shoes that Nike's producing, and they need smaller percentages to feel like it's a success. It's not just TV, it's not just cable, it's everything. People want customization. When you go to Starbucks, and they write your name on your cup of coffee, why do they write your name on a cup of coffee? I always thought it was so they knew whose coffee was whose, right? Isn't that the obvious answer? So it, it's not. It was done by design so that you would feel like that cup of coffee was made for you, a person, customized. When I do this talk with, when there's millennials in the room, not a single millennial has ever paid for music. Paid for music. They've downloaded it illegally on Napster and many other subsequent free, free, illegal sites. And now they get it streaming for free because their parents pay for Amazon Prime or whatever it is, right? They literally have never bought a CD or any other kind of, they've never bought an MP3 either, right? Um, so think about what this means for how we relate to the notion of, well, it feels amazing to have 2,000 people together under one roof in a synagogue, right? And we are one community. Essentially, everything is showing us that we need customization, personalization, and a way to act both in macro community ways and in micro community ways. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to share with you just two other quick things I think are cute about the millennials. So. Um, one author called them the my way, right away, why pay generation, which I think is true. I mean, I'm not technically millennial. I actually feel that way. Like, I don't actually understand why I have to pay for synagogue. I mean, I do. I, I run an organization. But when the bill comes from the synagogue, I'm like, I have to pay to go daven somewhere? I have to, pray to go, you know, I have to pay to go pray somewhere? Um, I, it, we charge for tickets at Hillel for community members. It, it grosses me out that we do it. I don't want to pick that fight, but like, it's a weird thing. It's not, it's not like going to the theater. This is like access to Judaism. And yet, we do these weird things, so like, I can understand that millennial mentality. Um, this is the other thing I think that's really interesting. Millennials are the least trustful generation in, in the history of Pew Research going all the way back to the greatest generation. So for the greatest generation, it was about 45% of Americans said, generally speaking, you can trust people. Millennials, it's 19%. This is less than half. So, What's weird, though, is they're the most collaborative generation that's ever been recorded. So how do, you, how do you square that they're collaborative but don't trust anybody? And I think the answer is they trust micro-communities. They don't trust macro. They never want to feel like one of the things that they said that they are brand agnostic. It's almost impossible to market to millennials. They want to be co-creators in, in the marketing. So like all the research talks about marketing with millennials, not to millennials. But, but you see, like, I don't know if you see already the immediate application to the Jewish community. We have a lot of like, we create it and offer it to you, right? We come up with great classes. We come up with, we lead great services. We have great programs for young professionals to get involved with. It's all this passive language. And if millennials want customization, they don't want to be part of the federation. They want to be part of something that feels like their thing, right? And they don't want to have it created for them. They want to be co-creators in it. It's a very, it changes the whole notion of what our organization should be doing and what leadership means. Good? Bad? Is that scares the hell out of everybody? Um, let me end on one piece of, of good news, and then I'll, I'll take any questions or comments. We can really pause for a second here. So here's where I think, I, I'm doing all the bad stuff, but here's where I think the positive thing. 
so did people hear about the Pew study in 2013, the Jewish Pew study? Everybody thought it was the end of the world. Every article I read made it look like it was the end of the world. The Federation changed their application. It was like, how will these programs directly solve the problems laid out in the Pew study of 2013? I never read it until I, I wrote the book. I don't actually think it's bad. None of it seems bad to me. What it says to me, because this is the statistic that I think changes everything, 94% of American Jews say that they have a high favorable rating of Judaism, which is dramatically higher than it was in the 90s and the 80s and the 70s and the 60s and the 50s. In every other population study it's ever been done. But what I, what I read is all of that like, evaporation wasn't of Jewish identity or Jewish passion, but it was an evaporation of commitment to the Jewish organizations that came of age in the second half of the 20th century. And that's scary, but it's not that scary. It's not the death of the Jewish people. It might just mean that my conservative synagogue might close, right? Or the federation might be much smaller than it used to be, right? I, so, okay, so I think it opens something up. So what if, instead of asking, how do we save the organization, we start asking, how do we save Jews and Judaism? And part of what I'm trying to pivot towards is like, when you start to change the questions, Sometimes a whole new set of strategies and possibilities arises, and that's like the second half of the talk is all the positive stuff, because I'm, I'm not here to like just tell you the whole world's changing, we're all going to be left behind, and the Judaism we know and love is, is of yesteryear. It's not actually true, right? We're going to continue. There's always going to be 15 or 20% of American Jews who thrive in institutional spaces. We just need to also figure out a way to do something for the other 80% who don't. So I want to pause there and let, pick a fight or ask a question or, uh, yeah. So maybe this is where you're going, actually, so I don't know. Have you read the article by Kelman and Cohen called Continuity and Discontinuity? Yeah. What's your take on that? They're, they're, and for those who don't know, they, they're postulating that millennials are creating different kinds of communities that are not institutional, <clears throat> and that's the future of where yeah. they're generating Jewish engagement. So. Yeah, I think... Um, my, I read the article a long time ago, um, but my sense is that it is focusing on, that there are a number of people writing about Jewish innovation. And this actually took me a really long time to figure out how to say in the book. Um, but this is how I think, this is the right way to say it. That there, there, one of the ways that I, I try to figure out like what is positive language that we can use to describe different types of Jews rather than affiliated and unaffiliated, peripheral or core. Like, it's all judgmental language. So, what's, so one of the terms is an old Hillel term called engagement and empowerment. Empowerment Jews are Jews with like deep Jewish resumes who um, kind of seek out Jewish institutional life and are like us, right? Even Jews who, who disaffiliate, if they grew up in it, I count them as empowerment Jews. Engagement Jews are Jews who feel just as Jewish and want it but they don't seek it out. They don't have as much on their Jewish resume. They don't know all the acronyms that make up the, you know, the American Jewish community, of the alphabet soup of the American Jewish community. And they need someone to reach them. They're not going like, to respond to a flyer or a Facebook invite. So what I think is happening is that people like Ari Kalman and Stephen Cohn in that article are writing about dramatic and important innovations for empowerment Jews. You grew up in a conservative synagogue, you did USY, you went to Ramah for 20 years, and you don't like your conservative synagogue, so you start Hadar, or Ikar, or B'nai Jeshurun, or any of the independent Minyanim, or you graduate from Hillel and you don't know what to do, so you go to Moisha House. These are incredibly important innovations, 
but my sense is, is that they are reaching primarily the 15% of empowerment Jews because, and I actually write about this, there's, there's two people I had in mind, like engagement empowered Jews act different. And so the, the example I gave was of real people that I knew, but like if you move to Philadelphia, it's amazing, I mean a whole lot because it's Philadelphia, but I'll, I'll try to make it mean something. The, the empowerment Jew moves to Philadelphia after college and they end up living near Rittenhouse. And Rittenhouse is like the center of the Jewish community where all the Jews are. And Moisha House is there and the Federation is there and there's a bunch of synagogues there. And there's like Shabbat lunches in, the, in Rittenhouse Park. And so they end up moving in with friends who went to summer camp, Jewish summer camp with them. And they have Shabbos dinners and they meet other Jews and they get tapped to be on some Federation thing. And by the time they're 35, they are like solidly institutional Jews. The engagement Jew moves to like Fishtown, like the hipster area where there's like microbrews and people have tattoos and they ride bikes in Philly that don't have any gears or brakes. What's it called? Like, I don't know what it's called. Right? And everyone has like really tight jeans and converse. And there's a much lower density of Jews. There are no Jewish institutions anywhere close by. No federations, no synagogues, no Moisha houses. And he moves in, in this, the person I'm thinking of, with friends from college. And he doesn't go to a Shabbat dinner. He just he goes to a bar. And he gets his regular social thing is a bar. And you can just see that even if they graduate, you know, they, they go in different directions. So I don't see engagement Jews on their own founding new alternative communities. I find empowerment Jews who need to reinvent the operating system of empowerment Judaism doing that. Is there anybody else who uses that same terminology in Parliament Jews? Is this, this is your... It's Richard Joel coined the term, um, who was president of Hill International uh, for many years. And he meant it, I think, to mean empowerment Jews are the ones who came to Hillel, affiliated. Engagement Jews are the ones who don't go to Hillel, unaffiliated. We have to go out and get them and make them empower. The goal is to get engagement Jews to become empowerment. We changed that at Penn Hillel over the years because the way we talk about it isn't judgmental. In other words... When you talk to those people, they, they are like deep, serious, passionate Jews. They might wake up every day and say Shema, but never go to synagogue and never show up. At, I mean, th- sorry, I'm telling a lot of stories here. There, during one of the wars, the Gaza wars, we were worried about engagement Jews reading anti-Israel stuff in the media and not knowing. So we held these brunches. I'm actually officiating at the wedding of this guy, one of the guys who was there um, in, in a week or two, um, Jeremy Perlman. Um, but so we held this brunch, and we were terrified they weren't going to support, you know, weren't going to know. And, and they were like, no, like, like, we love Israel. Like, I went on birthright. I have a cousin who lives in Israel. Like, they were fraternity guys, so they said, like, not nice things. Also, like, bro-y kind of things. There, there was, like, no doubt in their mind they love Israel. I said, great. So what would you say if I told you that an anti-Israel group was having a march on campus later this week? And they're like, F that. Those guys are, you know, like, in a fratty kind of way. And I said, great. So will you come out to the Israel rally? And you know what they said? Hell no. My relationship with Israel is about me. It's about my family. It's about that birthright trip. It's not a pep rally where I have to pick a team and root for one team. And then they also talked about how they don't know enough to show up with the Israel people. Just like you might be intimidated to show up at a service, it's all in Hebrew and you don't know the words, they don't want to show up and feel ignorant that they don't know every Knesset member in every war. So all these people that, that sometimes we count as apathetic aren't. They're passionate they're just not interested in affiliating. They're just not interested in organized Jewish life. And maybe that's okay. I don't always love organized Jewish life. I, sometimes, you ever go, like, the, I don't know, you go to an event, and you're like, oh, this is horrible, right? Anyway, okay, sorry, sorry. And sometimes you go to one, and they change your life. I'm, I'm, I'm not, but I, I can empathize. That's what I'm saying, yes. So how do you think birthright is impacting the Jewish people and Jewish life? So I think birthright really works, um, having seen it. 
it's, um, look, we know there's certain things that work, right? Um, families modeling things at home, mimetic tradition, right, where you just, you do what your family did, that works. You, you can create a vessel for a Jewish soul at home, right? If you have beautiful Shabbat dinners every week, um, regardless of whether or not your kid goes to Hillel or um, affiliates with the synagogue, there's like a much higher likelihood that they will have a, a positive Jewish life. Immersive experiences work. There's a thing called segmentation, which I think was coined by the editor of Moment Magazine that I couldn't find the reference, where there's like real life, and then you leave real life and go to Jewish life, right? It's like uh, real life is like you know school dances, and then it's like the youth group dance, and there's like a real difference between the school dance and the youth group dance, right? Real life is like your your mic, right? And then Jewish life is like Amaro and Yitzchak, right? Um, so we do this in all sorts of ways. Um, so the powerful thing about immersive experiences like camp um, and like birthright is it, it destroys that division between uh, Jewish, Jewish and real life. It's all real life. And so Israel is like very powerful for that. It's not even about the political piece. It's about secular Judaism. Like in just having debriefed hundreds and hundreds of coffee dates post-birthright, it's about the symbolism of Israel bringing out Jewish feelings. It's about the immersive nature of the Jewish community. And it's about secular Israelis. Because think about it, when you're in America and you want to go feel Jewish, you go to shul. And then you got to sit through all the services, just because what you really want to do is go to Kiddush and feel Jewish. And so half the room wants to pray and feel close to God, and half the room wants to go to Kiddush. And oftentimes, no one's totally satisfied. So the first time that they, they could see a full you know, three-dimensional Jewish life that didn't involve ritual and was just about identity was in Israel. And that confirmed what they feel like on the inside, which is they identify. Does that make them empowered when they come home if they weren't empowered before? No, I, I think, no. I think empower, to become an empowerment you takes years. Years and years. Yeah, I mean, um, the people who lend sacks out of the Cone Center at Brandeis is doing that research, and the data is pretty positive. The birthright works. Camp works also. Hillel works also, by the way. They actually found, sorry, we're like way off topic. Is this okay? Can we like play a little bit and then I'll, I'll bring us back? A really fascinating study came out of the Cone Center uh, like two years ago. Um, children of intermarried families um, versus children of unmarried families uh, showed like pretty big differences about like how often you light Hanukkah candles or go to a Shabbat dinner or like read a Jewish book. It's like, a, it's about half, right? So it's like if 80% if of unmarried families ha light Hanukkah candles, it's about 40% of children of, of interfaith families. If you go to Israel and you're part of a Jewish community in college, you graduate at the exact same level as two Jewish parents. And so we asked the researcher, um, Fern Schertag, if you had to solve for what's more influential, birthright or campus Jewish community, she said campus Jewish community by far. Because think about it, the first time you ever do anything on your own is in college. Sorry, I'm getting like way into my Hillel shtick here, but there's this, I tell this to like incoming parents all the time. It's like the uh, laundry detergent companies, I read an article, are obsessed with college kids. The first time you ever buy your own laundry detergent is freshman year of college. And whatever you buy, cheer tide, doesn't matter. Like the likelihood of being lifelong brand loyal. And, and this is not a joke, but it literally said this in the article. The only thing that changes that is if you marry someone who uses a different brand. Okay, but like that's a ridiculous example. But what about the serious things? If the first time you ever have Shabbat dinner, not because your grandparents were hosting it, or, or you go to service not because you were forced to go, or you, or you stand up awkwardly and defend Israel, because it feels like it's your people, that's like that's identity formation. So we know that doing things that are Jewish with other Jews in college is a huge pivot point.
Well, is that true for Jewish people of one Jewish parent versus those with two Jewish parents? Is it the same across the board? Yeah, it's growth across the board. Yeah. So how do we get college, Jewish college kids where they have one or two parents to actually become so popular with them? Beautiful. Back, back in the 60s yeah. and 70s, the universities would actually give a, a list of Jewish students. Yeah. That doesn't happen anymore. So. Yeah, some. And even then, it was like yeah. feet to try to get them to come. We used to joke, the only way we could actually get them to come is to actually physically give them money, and then maybe they would come. Right. So. I think that, that that question of like, how do you get them to come actually I think is the, um, is a, is the perfect segue. Because the answer, our answer was, and, and I think Debbie and I were like outrageously flippant about this back in the day, like whatever, 2006 or seven, whenever we were, we were like, doesn't matter if they ever come. And I would actually go to coffee with students and say, could Rabbi Mike, I'm happy to have coffee with you, not interested in getting involved in Hillel. And I say, couldn't care less, not my job. Hill's job is not to get you to be involved in Hill. Hill's job is that while you're figuring out who you are as an adult away from your family, that you also figure out who you are as a Jew and to get over your pediatric understanding of Judaism. Because by the way, everybody's got Jewish baggage. Too much Judaism, not enough Judaism. My rabbi was too nice. My rabbi wasn't nice. Whatever, there's always baggage. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So I'll, let me take you into some of the theory. And these are theories that I think are app, I think actually what I'm going to do is maybe only one theory, um, but it's applicable, I think, to the adult Jewish community. And, and then it'll also answer your question, too. So the, the theor, one of the big um, theories, now Debbie and I, I, you can attest to this, we did not know that this theory existed when we came up with this idea. And the truth is, the core part of this was in my binder from 1998. But it actually is like an idea that's out there. This guy, Clay, uh, not Clay Shirky, um, Clayton Christensen, wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. He's a Harvard Business School professor. Have you ever have you heard of the book? Great. So this will be really interesting, because you've never heard of it before. So, um, and actually, I want to start this way. It's a little bit sticky, but I think it's good. So how many of you have, and I'm borrowing this from Dan Liebenson, but how many of you have a camera in your pocket or purse right now? Raise your hand. Okay. But, and if this was 1995, raise your hand if you would have a camera in your pocket or purse with you right now. Raise your hand. So here's an amazing thing. Kodak invented digital photography in 1975. And they knew about it, and they developed it, and they talked about it. And there's all these case studies where at board meetings, they couldn't figure out what to do with digital photography. And then print photography, like other things, you know, early digital cameras were coming online, flip phones were coming online, and Kodak was shrinking. And every board meeting, you know what they talked about? How do we get people back? How do we get more people to buy paper, to buy film, to buy 35 millimeter cameras? Photography is dying. Photo literally, photography is dying was what they said. It's such a powerful analogy to the Jewish community, because if you look at what's going on, it's like Kodak is dead, right? It went bankrupt in 2012. And yet, there are more pictures being taken today than at any point in human history. There are more tools to be able to edit and share those pictures than at any time in human history. And you know how it all happened? It happened with flip phones. Um, there, were, there were some, remember those old digital cameras that were like one megapixel and you'd push the button and it would think for like three minutes and then take the picture and everyone looked kind of like, <laughs> like it was a wax figure. So 
that wasn't what killed Kodak. What killed Kodak was when they put the, the phone in a, uh, the, the camera in the flip phone, and no serious, this is also very important for Jewish community, this analogy here, the serious photographers, the people who really were the bread and butter of Kodak wanted high quality cameras, high quality paper, high quality chemicals, high quality film. It's like, what are you gonna do with these like crappy digital cameras? But so you know who adopted them early, the early adopters of these digital cameras? Were teenagers. Because they didn't have money, they didn't want to pay for film, they didn't want to have to rely on their parents to drive them to the photo mat, drop it off to wait three days to get the pictures back. And they could do this thing their parents didn't know about called texting, and they could take a picture and text it to someone else. So this is the rule of disruptive innovation. This is what, this is what Clayton Christensen's talking about. Why is it that really good companies with really good products and really smart leaders that do everything right get unseated by startups? So like, just transpose it to the Jewish community. You look at the some of the federations across the country, they're amazing. You look at some of the synagogues, amazing. Rabbinic town, it's incredible. And yet, we're stuck, right? Like the best, I don't know, who are the best rabbis in America in synagogues, right? The I don't know, but they're, they're, they're doing, this is my theory, and I, I, I don't know what your life is like, you have a, maybe a smaller synagogue, but like, by the time you get done, with all the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs and the committee meetings and the Hebrew school and, the two, and all the stuff that you need just to be a normal synagogue, that's 70 hours a week, right? And you have not met any new Jews. You haven't reached out to the engagement Jews. You haven't figured out what to do. With, and that was Kodak's problem. They had to spend every amount of money they had to figure out how to sell the film and the paper and the cameras so they couldn't expend energy to figure out what to do with the digital. And, this, and, and Clayton Christian shows us again and again and again that um, essentially the core market controls what the company does. And because the company is so big, it has to be really slow and careful about every change it makes. Again, I don't know what it's like here, but a lot of synagogues and federations, they do these like three-year strategic planning process for a five-year strategic plan. So eight years later, you're, you know, in, in 2018, you're working on what you came up with in 2010 when Snapchat didn't exist, when Instagram didn't exist, when Facebook only had college students. I, I don't know, whatever. Like, think about the rate of change. It doesn't work anymore, right? So what do big companies do now? They don't try to innovate, they buy startups. Google is already old, so they buy, I don't know, Inst who, owns, who owns Instagram? Google. Facebook, okay. So they bought Snapchat, whatever it is, right? Um, Google is old, so they bought Waze, because Waze was the innovative GPS. I don't want to belabor the point, but you get the idea. So there's only one case study that he could find of a legacy company that was able to both be the old and be the new. And this is, I think, like part of our answer for the Jewish community. Do you guys want to hear the case study, or you just want to hear how it plugs into the Jewish thing? What did you say? So the company is, so how many of you remember, how many of you shopped at a place called Woolworth? Raise your hand if you've been in a Woolworth. So, I, yeah, oh, sh wow, even, okay, even Shmuley. Um, okay, how many of you have shopped in a place called Dayton's or Dayton, Dayton Hudson? Older, small, okay. So really, I, I, like I geek out on this stuff, but apparently Walmart invented a new kind of retail called discount retailing which was instead of having huge markups on a few items, you, had, you sold a ton of stuff with a very low markup. And companies realized that this was an important innovation. It was a disruptive innovation. So other companies wanted to get into it. So both Woolworth 
and Dayton Hudson wanted to figure out how to get into the, Dayton Hudson was a, was a, a department store, not exactly the cutting edge of retail, and Woolworth you know, was Woolworth. So they both tried to get into the discount retail space at the same exact time, I forget the year, 1964, 1962. So Woolworth created Woolco. Does anyone ever, did you ever hear Woolco? You did? Okay. It's cool. Actually, it's nice to hear that there are people who actually hear. And then, you know, Dayton Hudson created was a company called Target. So you already know the punchline now, right? But what's interesting is the, the corporations handled these experiments totally differently. Woolco wanted to, to make it cool and new and hip and reach new markets, reach the engagement Jews. But they had the same people with the same skills, same corporate metrics, same corporate culture, and they wanted control over what Woolco did. So what they sold couldn't be competitive with what Woolworths was selling. They couldn't open up, up, up across the street. It's like the synagogue says, well, if we allow an independent minion to start, what's that going to do to the main sanctuary service? So they control, they lock it down. We don't want people giving outside the federation system. Everyone has to give through us. Lock, it kills innovation, right? On the other hand, you have Dayton Hudson that basically said, do whatever you want. They hired different people and let them be target. You could open up across the street from a Dayton Hudson. They said, try to put us out of business. Just try. If you put us out of business, great. We'll be out of business. Because what we're looking to do is figure out how to save retail, not how to save Dayton Hudson. And that's exactly what happened, right? Dayton Hudson sold off its department store to Neiman Marcus or one of those, and then eventually to Macy's. What's, there's another one. It's not Neiman Marcus, but it's one of them. I forget. What did you say? Okay, maybe Nordstrom's, and then it renamed itself Target. And obviously Target is doing incredibly well. So this is his one example. And this is what Debbie and I stumbled into at Penn Hillel. We saw the same dynamic, and tell me if this feels the same to you. And then we're just going to talk and try to figure out how to do this, right? Um, my first year at Penn Hillel, we hosted high holiday services for 3,500 people. It was right in the beginning. Yeah, we were like, we are the best still in the country. We're the, as, as Rabbi Shmuley says, we are the gold standard. And uh, it was my first year as a rabbi, and I got to give a sermon that was really bad and quoted like 74 medieval Jewish sources um, in front of 1,200 people, and I thought I was a badass. And it was right in the beginning of the year, and so before the program year started, I was like working on my sermons and working on my Haftorah reading and working with the Chazan to get my, the davening right. And then I walked out of Rosh Hashanah services like 2 in the afternoon onto the campus green, and there was the Chabad rabbi talking to a real living student. I didn't talk to anybody. I, we were so busy running Hillel, we didn't have any time to talk to students. I didn't have any time to talk to students. We, I used to be on, Debbie was never on the side of Hillel, but you were on the Shabbat rotation every, every, I don't know, two or three Friday nights a month. You had to be at Hillel. I had like 15 Hillel groups I had to advise. We had to do kosher dining and admissions. We had to do left-wing Israel, right-wing Israel, center of the road Israel, conservative reform, orthodox, reconstructionist, everything, right? We have to be all things to all people all the time because we need to get people in the door. That's the most important. We get more people in the door. And we had a lot of people in the door, by the way. We had like 500 regulars. We had 300 events a month. We still do in Penn Hillel. But so what I saw was not only did we not have the bandwidth to meet anybody new or do anything new, because we're already already working 70 hours a week just to keep afloat, but there was a tipping point at which Hillel could not be welcoming to new people. Hillel, whatever we said Hillel was, Hillel was the 500 people who were in the room when you, that new person, walked in. And what I also found is that even Hillel wasn't that. Every year I see this happen. I just saw it happen two weeks ago. 
you walk up to a scared group of freshmen on the first Friday night. There's like 500 people in the building. And, and, and you just you see their scared. So you say, wow, there's like a lot of Jews here. And they're like, oh, my God, there's so many people. And everybody knows everybody. Look at those people over there. They're already friends. We're the only ones who don't know anyone. And then you walk across the hall to those people and you say, hi, guys, like, it's a lot of Jews. Oh, God, it's so intimidating here. Look at those people over there. And they point to the first group of people. Everyone is projecting everyone else as the insider. This is like in the book in a serious way. It's called the club model. It's a real dynamic. No matter who's on the inside, everybody on the outside assumes that everybody on the inside is the same, and they're not like me, and I'm not welcome. There's no way to fix that dynamic. You need clubs because clubs create community, and community needs to have, Debbie actually said this once beautifully. She said, the thing that was amazing about the Orthodox community pen is they had very high boundaries, but if you got over them, there was a very high payoff because it was a real community. They really took care of each other. So that's the power of the club model. But a club model, which works well for being insular, doesn't work well for inviting new people in. Because you have to go through some initiation, right? Pay for a membership. Learn Hebrew. I don't know. Whatever it is, right? Um, sit through a service. Um, so how do we fix all that? How do, we, how do we learn? And you have Chabad over here. They got no, basically no building back then. They, you know, they had a small number of people for Friday night dinner. And they were just like operating in the fringes and doing all this amazing work. I would go into a, a meeting of the conservative minion, and they'd be fighting about who's reading Torah, and should we, can we switch to the triennial? No, we have to do the full Kriya, the full reading. And then I would walk into a, a black hat Orthodox outreach group, and they'd be talking to students about like, what does a successful like, life look like for you, and when is enough enough? I was like, what's wrong with this? I don't mean to paint Penn Hillel. Penn Hillel was doing beautiful things, but it was doing like what we all do in the organized Jewish world. If you've served on a synagogue board, a lot of times you get burned out from it. We were doing the same things. We were burning out the student leaders with a million programs. So this was the idea we had. What if we took three staff people, me, Debbie, and Matt Sosnow, out of the building. We don't advise any Hillel groups. We're not on the Shabbat rotation. We don't have an office. We get laptops, which back then was still like a new thing. We got money for cell phones, which was a big thing back then also. And Debbie sat in Houston Hall in the Student Union. And Matt Sussnow sat in, uh, in the Freshman Quad in a place called McClellan. And I sat some of the time in, in Wharton. And that's where we did our work. Our staff meetings were in Houston Hall at this one table. Everything was done where students live, work, and play. And our job was to meet new students who would never go to Hillel, who are engagement Jews. How do we define engagement Jews? 80% um, of them, 20% needed to be people who had no past affiliation. And by that, we meant didn't have a bar bat mitzvah ceremony growing up. Okay, 60% could be people who had a bar bat mitzvah ceremony, but never did youth group camp or day school. And 20% could be people who did camp, youth group, and day school, but had never been to Hillel yet. And that's who we had to engage. And then what do we do with these people? We, met, we had coffee dated a lot of people. And instead of saying, are you interested in getting involved in Hill, or here's something I can offer you, we basically got them to tell their Jewish story. And out came all the, it was for me at least, I don't know if Debbie has a different version. The truth is every staff person had a different version, because whatever's in your own soul is what comes out. Like the connection you share with this other person is what comes out in the conversation. But my conversation was always, I love Judaism. I think it's cool, but I don't know anything about it. And I feel embarrassed about that, inauthentic and insecure. And every time I show up in formal Jewish spaces, I feel like a fraud. And I don't know how to get to be the kind of Jew I want to be. And so if I offered them a chance to get involved in Hillel, they didn't want it. But if I offered them a chance to resolve the tension between the guilt and the pride, it was like 80, 90% were, were like jumping to do it. But the, what was the it? 
So we figured this out. We, we convene them in small micro communities. And what we could say is, I could say, listen, this is not a Hello program. I don't care about the program, I care about you. You were like the 15th person I had coffee with this week that said the same thing. And you're all, you all happen to be in fraternities. So I'm getting this group together. And they're, just, they're people who, just trust me, they're, they're like, like you. They're like cool like you. They like, they like the same things you like. And they're in the same place Jewishly. They're asking the same questions. And the truth is, if you don't like it, just, you don't even have to tell me you want to drop out. Just wink. And I'll never, like, no guilt. There's no guilt here. The goal is not the program. The goal is you. So if it's not, I think it's a good fit. But if it's not, bail. So then they meet. And the first thing they do is like everyone gets to tell a Jewish autobiography for 10 minutes. And out comes all of the, sh the crap, right? What, what they didn't get, right? Poor souls at the University of Pennsylvania in their Ivy League school, right? Um, but what also comes out of that is the curriculum of Jewish learning that we do for the year. So we learn every week very serious Jewish learning meant to help people self-author their Jewish identity, to feel more confident, to put the pieces together. Not, not facts, not Jewish literacy, but things that give you the ability to be an empowered Jew, right? Um, and then they get paid to create Jewish life for their friends. So you can start to see that over the years, Hillel in the building, 500 regulars, about 1,000 Jews altogether. Out of the building, about 1,000 other Jews through JRP. In the end, now we're reaching like over 90% of the Jews on campus. Half in the building, half out of the building. And, oh sorry, JRP is our target. So that's the program that you were trying The to Jewish start? Renaissance Project, yeah. And um, it's still to say it's three staff people out of the building. Many of the same things that, that Debbie and I worked on creating are, it's not called GGLs anymore, it's called the Greek Life Seminar. Um, but it's, you know, the same thing. And, um, a lot of that DNA, because it's really interesting, then the Hillel students, so I want to say a couple of things and then we'll, I'll finish up. So the, the numbers expand exponentially because what happens is you have Sarah hosting Shabbos dinners for Jews who would never go to Hillel. And then what you can see in the tracking data is that like, I don't know, Josh Schwartz would have come to Hillel maybe for like Yom Kippur and maybe Seder. He would have come with two or three friends, sat passively, for an anonymous experience. He might have enjoyed it, by the way. We do good stuff, but like qualitatively, it's like a, it's a consumer experience, not a participatory experience usually. And then he would have left with his same group of two or three. And now in addition to that, he's also having a Rosh Hashanah dinner, a, celebra a, a celebration party dinner for Rosh Hashanah, a break fast in his fraternity. In you know, October, some rabbis come in and doing like a thing about the Torah of hooking up. In November, they're doing something about like being thankful. They're lighting Hanukkah candles, right? Over the course of the year, it went from two to 12 or 14 engagements, okay? And then, and then there's a lot of crap. I wanna be honest also. We have interns who like take people to the movies. I remember there was one who's actually marrying uh, another JRP intern, uh, or, or already has, but she took people to, he's just not that into you on Valentine's Day, and then it was like, Judaism and dating, and like, I think we just paid for movie tickets, right? But that's the thing, is that it, Clayton Christensen tells us this, early innovations often are lower quality. Like, like um, think of early digital cameras, think of anything, right? Early digital cameras, um, what are other disruptive innovations? Think about like, the first time, I don't know how early you were to do this, but the first time I tried to log on to the New York Times on a modem, like a dial-up modem, how horrible that experience is versus like what it's like to read it on your iPhone now, right? So the early things are crappy, and we're, we're going to let things fail and fail early, and that's okay. Um, so fast forward. 
we are raising now about $650,000 a year out of a, you know, about two and a half million dollars we have to raise every year for JRP that funds the building, that funds my time, that funds the fundraiser's time, that pays for overhead. It's all transparent in the, in the fundraising documents. Um, it's spread, it's on 120 campuses around the world, um, is some version of this. And um, really interesting dynamics have started to happen. Alumni who are JRP interns have a higher donation rate than student leaders who are Hillel leaders. Student leaders in Hillel are always mad at Hillel that we don't reimburse them fast enough because it takes 24 hours to cut a check. They're millennials. What's the, what, there's an app, Venmo? They just want to Venmo the reimbursements. Um, the JRP kids don't want to be reimbursed because they say, I'm not doing a program for Hillel. I'm just hosting my friends for Shabbos dinner. I don't charge my parents. I put on my parents' credit card, right? It's free. <laughs> but, and I think part of it's that, but part of it's like you see the difference. Like the Hillel kids see it as a role. They see it as a structural thing. They see it as institutional. As much as they love it, and as much as it's a transformative experience for them as leaders and as Jews, it, there's something cold about it too, right? Because what they're doing is planning Israel Week, because that's their job. They're Israel Week chair. That's the name. In JRP, they're figuring out what Judaism means to them. So I think that, that this model could really be used at any Jewish organization, and it, really at any size. It doesn't have to be as grand. I realize Penn. Penn has like a real blessing that we have hedge fund managers who all went to Wharton. So we, we have a capacity that not every synagogue or Hillel or you know, federation has. But um, I think for like $10,000, you could create this. And so this is the last thing I'm going to say, and then I'm just going to open it up. I, I just want to give one federation example and one synagogue example so you see this concrete, and then we can play with it. And by the way, I don't think that this is the magic bullet that will solve everything in Judaism. I just think it's better than not doing it. Right? I, what I know is that it, it has not solved any of our problems. But what I know is that Josh Schwartz went from two Jewish events to 16 Jewish events. I know that's better. We had lots of conversations. Remember this, I don't know if you remember this. For me, this is like very important, but like, like well, if they just have Shabbos dinners, is that enough? And we like, yeah. If they just have Shabbos dinners, there's something about Shabbos dinner, it's enough. If we take a population of students that would have had no Shabbat dinners and they have eight, that's better. So this is the way it could work, right? Um, a synagogue, in addition to everything they do, is a small version, right? Not hiring staff and a separate brand, separate website, but find 15 adult fellows who are connectors and influencers in your community, members or non-members, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but they shouldn't necessarily be part of the core because part, one of the problems with the core, with all of us, and even me now, honestly, is that we are so invested in what we like, Jewishly, it's very hard to do something different even when we mean to do something different. But if you get people of a different background, all of a sudden different things happen. But you find these people, and you invest in them, and you inspire them in deep learning, and tra I don't know, think about like the adult Wexner Fellowship. What's, I don't know what it's called, the Wexner Legacy Fellowship or something, Wexner Heritage Fellowship. Um, that's the model. It becomes very selective, very elite, very specialized. You do tremendous investment, and then you find a way to incentivize adults to become creators of Jewish life for people they know, and they do mapping. So you get somebody who is a partner in a law firm that has a ton of Jews who are unaffiliated. I know I just used a dirty word there, but right, who are not active in institutional life, and all of a sudden they start to activate them. And all those people that you play racquetball with and golf with and, and see in the office that you never talk Jewish with, this is what, literally what would happen. Sarah, this woman, all these people that she knew who partied together and studied together, it was the first time they ever did Jewish together. 
right? And you could plug in whatever you want, right? It could be learning, where you learn with some, a professional educator on Tuesday night, every Tuesday night, and then once a month on Sunday, you host something in your house for 10 or 15 people, right? And I, I see this as in addition to. So if you have an amazing, robust adult education program, do more to make it more amazing and more robust, and figure out how to get 15 people to get 10 people, right? Let's say you, you grow the adult education from 30 to 60. Well, then you can get 150 people by having 15 fellows doing stuff in their homes. You could do the same thing with Federation. Federation actually does a good job with engagement because it's about money. So they find the Jews in town who aren't connected to institutions but who are making money, and they engage them. And, and fundraising and engagement are actually very similar because you don't go and say, hey, are you interested in joining? If you want to, hey, hey, are you interested in giving me money? No, you, you have to, you like, you coffee date them, you take them out to lunch, you find out what inspires them, right? And then you match the organization in a very customized way with the donor's interest. That's what engagement is, but about Jewish, without a money piece, right? Um, but what Federation does is they then plan everything for those, the, the cabinet or, you know, the Renaissance group or whatever it is, and so all Federation would have to do is to add a peer-to-peer -peer element to those groups, where instead of the Israel 360 group throwing one big event and trying to get 200 people to show up, that each of them start to host small things. They could all create small giving circles. If the Federation's job is to build philanthropy, does it matter how they give? So if you have a million more dollars in your annual campaign and you find a million new dollars through micro small giving circles that go to Jewish charities, that's still the mission. So in some ways, this is not like radical at all. In some ways, it's very radical, right? I think the radical thing is, is saying that like the real future growth is not in fixing a denomination or fixing a membership model or you know, fixing our brand. It's really about finding a way relationally to get to the other 75 or 80% of Jews and to create ways for them to do Jewish on their own. Last thing I'm gonna say is, we, none of us have enough resources to do all this stuff, right? Part of what works in this model, there's a whole chapter on this, is if you get away from the idea that the institution has to do it for the people and you empower people to do it for themselves, you dramatically expand your resources. There's no way in a million years that Penn Hill could have 300 events a month in the building if our 10 programmatic staff people ran it. It's impossible. It's because we have 250 student leaders who all think they run Hillel. Every single one of them thinks they run Hillel. Every single group thinks that they're both the center and the, the marginalized outsider. The Orthodox, the head of the Orthodox community, which is the largest group, who's there 45 hours a week. Well, I'm not a Hillel person, I'm Orthodox. The Hillel president, Naomi Kaplan said, I'm not a Hillel person, I'm just Hillel president. Okay, but, but that, it's, it's chaotic. But it works. We call it sacred chaos. It was the brilliant, it was the brilliant work of Jeremy Brochen, who was who the longtime Hillel director there, who did not have an ego and was a Hillel director. It wasn't about him. It was about the students. And that was an amazing thing to be able to open that up. Yeah. So um, I agree. Um, and I have, a, I have a, a very narrow mind traditionalist still alive, um, which says um, there are things that have kept the Jewish people alive. And they're necessary parts to being a part of the Jewish experience. <clears throat> you fast on Yom Kippur, whether you like it or not, right? You have to be at home interest, right? You have to like know the, the 50 most important sugiyot from the Talmud, right? These are experiences that are fundamental to Jewish life, and so um, 
I guess where, where I want to push back, even though I, I 85% agree with you, but I have this, yeah. this feeling inside of me that says, who cares if you lose a whole bunch of Jews and Jewish let's, let's remain authentic to yeah. what, um, what has sustained Jews for millennia, and um, let's do it in the best ways we can figure out how to do it. <clears throat> Rather than just saying, whatever speaks to you, we're going to empower and support how we make, maintain those functions. Yeah. So um, part of your statement, I, what you say, I totally agree with, and part of, I, I just think it's a misphrasing a mis, um, of where I'm going, because there's nothing about this that, is, that gets rid of tradition, actually. Because what I would say is, like, if there was a person who never went to services growing up, who didn't have a bar about mitzvah ceremony, who only ha- went to three seders in their whole life to the age of 18, and you want to get them to go to Kol Nidre, what's the best methodology for getting them to Kol Nidre? It, I still think it's this, which is like you build a relationship, you do like really deep investment in serious Jewish learning, and you start with where they are, and then you build them into an inspired Jew. And then you give them this like incredibly wide array of possibilities of how to choose their future. So, so actually, like, I think that if your goal was to get more Jews to put tefillin on, you could use the same methodology to create like tefillin groups, right? But yeah, so I, I, and I actually think what Chabad is doing in all of the Orthodox outreach groups that are trying to get people to be Balchuva is they're doing this also because they don't have huge institutions that they have to run. And I actually think the big institutions aren't doing this. So you're talking about serious, the 50 best, so how many synagogues in America? are making sure that their board members know the 50 most important sugiyot in the Talmud. How many federation leaders are, are, right? That's my problem of like, you go to the federation meeting and it's the bylaw fight, and you go to a JRP class and you're learning a sugiyot of Talmud. So I think that we're so busy sustaining the institutions that we don't have time to do the, the deeper Jewish stuff. So I actually think in some ways this frees you up to do more depth. But the second part of what you said is the thing that keeps me up at night because I don't have any confidence that a grassroots approach is gonna be more successful than like a grass top approach. And like, I've had this conversation with people at the Hartman Institute. Hartman's model is elitist. It's like, we're gonna work with the five or 10,000 most influential intellectual Jews in America, and it'll trickle down. And what we need to do, and like Hadar, do, you, do people know about Hadar? Like in New York, so these brilliant, amazing guys, Ethan Tucker and Shai Held and, and uh, Ellie Confer, who created this minion, Hadar, and then it became a yeshiva. And it's innovation. It's, it's innovation since like it's an incredible minion, but it's just, it's just a like conservatox minion, right? It's like, and the yeshiva's just a yeshiva. But, but their theory of change is that you go to the highest common denominator, you create a most vibrant core, and that a vibrant core that is exclusive will attract people, as opposed to this model that says, like, diffuse group of networks. But I think what I, and I have no confidence in that, and what I would actually really like to see is both. Yeah, but again, it's their, their alumni are so solidly in the empowerment group. Right? In other words, these are people who thrive in a full Hebrew minion where they don't call pages because you should just know where you are. And it breaks up the service to call pages. And, and again, like, that's powerful, but it's not... I think that my, my idea would be is that like, 
maybe you would stratify this, Shmuley, right? Where like elite cores can attract, like if it's concentric circles, it can attract you know, a few degrees outside of that core. But it doesn't solve the problem of what do you do about the other 80%? What do you do about Sarah Scheuer? What do you do about, right? And, and I actually think that like, if we're not willing to go out and convert non-Jews who are actually really interested in being Jewish, like, like what are we going to do to save the Jewish future? There, there are probably million, there are probably more people in America who would be ready to like keep kosher, study Torah, observe some kind of Shabbat, and convert to Judaism than there are Jews in America, right? But no one wants to talk about that, right? So like, if we're not going to be that radical, the next radical step to grow our world is to get those 80% who feel Jewish but don't know how to get in to get them in in a concierge way. Right? And maybe it's not in, but maybe it's into Judaism, but not into an institution. Now, how do you see this different than the Chavurah movement? The Chavurah movement is entirely made up of empowerment Jews who are rejecting the authority of other empowerment Jews. But if you're empowering <clears throat> the students, at some point you're delegating a certain amount of decision making, and it's going <clears throat> to take you a little bit away from tradition. How do you it deal does. with that? Do you say, okay, that's enough, I'm now... Uh, top down on you? No, so I, th I think what's interesting, I mean, there is one thing I think this model cannot solve for at all, and I'm happy to out myself on that. I, I don't think it can solve for, for traditional Jewish prayer. Because if you, if, how does Sarah Scheuer go from her background to like a three, you know, a three hour service? So like, unless you're willing to, and, and, and again, I'm not a, I'm a pluralist, I'm a Hillel Jew by heart, but like when I go to pray, I pray in traditional places, right? So the reform movement has an answer to that, which is to change the liturgy and to make it more accessible and to make it shorter. But if you're not in the reform movement, there's really no answer. I mean, you have to, it took me, I grew up kind of out, not super Jewishly involved. It took me a year of practicing every day to learn the weekday Amidah in Hebrew. Because it took me so long to sound out each blessing. Um, most Jews are not going to do that. So I don't, none of this engagement stuff I think really, saw, you have to, I don't know the answer to that question. But I, I just want to analyze the way that you asked the other part of your question, which is um, that are we moving away from tradition? We're not doing anything. Because the truth is, it's them. So the question is, is always like, well, would you buy unkosher food for the Shabbat dinner, let's say? Or what if they don't make Kiddush? Or if they don't make the right Kiddush? So the thing is, you, we're talking a population of Jews that don't do Shabbat dinner. So is Shabbat dinner with unkosher food better than no Shabbat dinner? So they've actually moved towards tradition. Each and every one of these cases that feels like we're moving away, I actually would argue is they're moving towards. They don't know, they're not connected enough to, to tradition to rebel against it. Every single thing they do, every Jewish conversation they have, every Jewish book they read is a step towards. But we're not in control of it. And so you're right. And, but look, this is the other thing. So the, the first time Sarah Scheuer hosted her Shabbat dinner, we had like a big fight in my office. This is like the first year we were doing this. And we, the whole model that we sold to the donors was like tech study. We were going to help them run tech studies. And she's like, I'm not doing a tech study. There's no way I'm doing a tech study. It would be so weird to try to do that with my friends. It's weird enough that I'm hosting a Shabbat dinner. And so I said, fine, just do what you're going to do. And so what does she do? They drank a bunch of wine, and she said, what does being Jewish mean to you? And they talked for like four hours. And then I went to a Sarah Shoya Shabbat dinner and did like a Torah thing, and they loved it. But when you, there's, a, there's a model in here in the book that shows the difference between like the passive client-server model versus a networked model. And a networked model is, 
basically is what happened. When Sarah hosted her Shabbat dinner, without my rich content, without my professional facilitation skills, you know what happened? They became a community, because they all talked to each other. When I came in, they all related to me as an institution. So there's, there's a, a, a diagram, but it's, that's one of the, in the book, that's called deficiency-based community development. It's when institutions try to fix problems in communities, they build these institutions where you come to us and we provide it for you. And they talk about community, but they actually undermine community because instead of you getting together to do for yourself, we do it for you. Come to Hillel for huge Shabbos dinners because we have this big, beautiful building that we need to fill. So the whole motivation is institutional in that scenario. The mission of Hillel is Jews having Shabbos dinner. It doesn't matter whether they're in the building or out of the building. So on most Friday nights, there might be more people out of the building having Shabbat dinner than having in. On Seder night, uh, on the good years when it's not on a weekend, we'll have 700 people in the building, student-led Seders, staff-led Seders, and 700 people out of the building having Seders. In the fraternities, in the sororities, in the office of student newspaper. But there's no reason that we have to, what I'm saying is don't be binary, right? Should it, if a shul is doing a strategic plan, I would love to see a world where we say, how do we increase the number of people coming on Friday night or Saturday morning? And how do we increase the number of people having Shabbat dinner at home? How do we increase the number of people saying blessing, saying moda uh, ani when they wake up, or shema to their kids when they go to bed? You, the only place Jews pray is not we know, right? Like, there's, there's a minion, and there's something called hikbo to where you go to solitude to find a moment of prayer. Jewish notions of prayer don't require coming into a synagogue. So again, I would like to daven in a minion. I would like there to be a minion. I don't want to kill that. But couldn't a strategic plan be two-pronged? Right? Both of those things are, and if, and if I went around the room and asked you to tell me knee-jerk, like what was the most meaningful Jewish experience that you can think of, or the, or the thing that, tra- that made you the Jew you are today, was it participation in a program? Or was it a human being in a relationship, or a teacher? or something that happened around a small family table. Seder, Shabbos dinner, a grandparent. All the research shows grandparents for millennials are huge um, repositories of Jewish identity. So I just think that we can, you know, we made the ends the means. Sorry, we made the means the end. The purpose of these institutions is to build Jewish life, not to sustain themselves. And I actually think the way we sustain them, (laughs) ironically, is by pretending we don't care and focusing on building Jewish life. And then you'll get the donations and the members and whatever else. Honestly, you will. Like it, it actually works. People are attracted to like a winning team. So if you become the most innovative organization in your neighborhood, you'll get all the young families. By accident, yeah. Is JRP actually part of Hello? Yeah. It is. It is. But, it's, um, but the staff team is separate. We have separate staff meetings. We hire differently. So to be a Hillel staff member, you have to have like a deep Jewish resume. You got to know J Street and APAC and NCSY and USY and Nifty. But you don't need that in JRP. What you need, basically what we figured out, you have to hire people who have some version of this story. I grew up Jewish. I didn't like it. There was this terrible this that happened to me. And then, I, then this happened or I met this person, I got totally turned on and I love Judaism. I went on birthright. I met this rabbi. I met Pinchas Giller at Washu. Right? That was my story. And then, because that's, that's the arc, and, and this is the problem. This is what, Clay, what Clayton Christensen says in a nice way that no one can ever say in their own community, is that we are all part of the problem. Right? Like, the people who love the film are what put Kodak out of business because they didn't give Kodak enough room to experiment. And so 
if you always loved the Jewish community, if you always felt home in the Jewish community, if you were like, you know, nifty president and then Hillel president and then president of the Renaissance, you know, and like straight, like I'm thinking of like Julie Platt in LA is like a, one of the best lay leaders in America. And the story always goes that like she was on Penn's campus as an undergrad raising money for the UJA campaign. Like she was that person from the day one. The problem is, is that if you always loved it, you can't understand why anyone wouldn't love it. But the, but the reality is like, Look, I, I, I said this already um, in the earlier podcast, but like, even at the moment of Sinai, the whole Jewish people standing together at the foot of Mount Sinai, we didn't receive one Torah. The Midrash tells us there were 70 faces to the Torah. Even in that, like even, for, you know, it's like one Jew, this actually happened at a job interview, uh, that we, we interviewed a rabbi for Hillel one time, and he made this joke. You know, there's the old joke, two Jews, three opinions, and someone raised their hand and said, actually, it's three Jews, four opinions. Like, they correct, there was a different opinion about the Jew, right? So even at that moment of singularity where we felt total communion with God, we couldn't even agree on the content of the Torah. So why should we agree about what it means to be a conservative Jew, or what it means to be a conservative Jew at one synagogue? Right or any other label that we have. And so the truth is, it's not that important. It's important for us to have our values. Like, again, I'm, I'm like very traditional in my own life. And, and there's a model of this. Chabad is it's an interesting thing. Why is it that Chabad, where they're, they're not egalitarian, um, a woman can't lead Kiddush, a woman can't count in a minion, a woman can't read Torah. If you're patrilineal Jewish, you can't go on a bur- you know, you can't count for them. Um, and where there is a soft loving goal of getting you to become religious is seen as the welcoming and warm um, denomination in American Judaism. And the reform movement and conservative movement are seen as judgmental, right? You know, you know this, right? This is like a common refrain. I found my home in Chabad because it was warm and welcoming and the reform temple wasn't. Because it's a, because, and, and yet the Chabad rabbi is not willing to budge an inch ideologically. When you show up at Chabad, it's his way. So you don't have to forsake your values to do engagement, but the reason is, is because the judgment I don't think is ideological at a reformer conservative temple. It's about membership. It's institutional. Do you, have, do you belong? Do you have tickets? Are you part of the brotherhood? Right? All of those things that make some people feel in make other people feel out. And we should have those things. It's good to have a fraternity, right? It's also good to have other things on campus so that you don't have to be part of a fraternity to feel included in something. So, uh, yeah. yeah. In the metrics that you use to measure success, yeah. are all numbers related? No, so that was one of the things we really wanted to get away from, to measure success by uh, breath. Part of it is because the numbers are so big, like. If we go from 90% to 92% to 88%, it doesn't really matter. Um, so what we do is we actually, and, and actually, there's, it's really embarrassing that I wrote a whole chapter. It was like my most insecure chapter, but I wrote a whole chapter about metrics um, because we've been geeking out on data. So someone who's not a member of the synagogue, is someone involved in leadership in their synagogue that, wants, that can be a guinea pig? You guys started a synagogue, right? Okay, so do you know um, what, people do and like do you know who goes to what brotherhood event and how many people came to high holidays and who comes to Shabbat and and is anyone on the staff looking at that data to try to understand trends? I've been out for a long time. Okay. <laughs> okay. So with with basically very little money, what we've started to do and it's really imperfect and any real 
social scientist or um, like evaluator, you know, you could pay an evaluator 50 grand and they would do a much better job than what I'm going to tell you, right? But essentially, we track breath and frequency. So everybody who comes to anything ends up in a tracking system. It's like a Google Doc. When we used to do it, it was like an, an open Google Doc. Now we dump it into some other system. But it's, it's not classy. But what it allows us to do is to run reports to find out how many freshmen were were connected to Hill either through one-on-one -on -one coffee dates or through programmatic attendance in the month of September and October. And then we do a thing like, who was here in September, October, but disappeared in November and December? And so instead of saying to our staff, be awesome to everybody all the time, we can say there's 74 freshmen who were at Hillel three or more times in September and then disappeared. Can, does anyone know Marcy Jacobs? Does anyone know, you know Chaim Yankel? And go out and meet them. It's like it is a quantifiable thing which what every business in the world does, what fundraisers do, but we never did on the program side. The second thing is we measure impact. And the way that we talk about impact is, I don't know who really wrote it. I thought it was um, from Beth Cousins, but it might have been Stephen Cohn. But it was part of a Hillel study. They did all these interviews, and they said, what are transformative Jewish experiences? They came up with four bubbles. And we use them. We re I really love this, actually. The four, and it's in the book. The four bubbles are, it is a, something that creates a positive Jewish memory. It's something that increases your Jewish self-confidence, increases your Jewish knowledge, and connects you to other Jews. So we survey twice a year um, any student who's in a leadership position or in one of these internships, which is about 550 students, and anyone who goes on an immersive experience, so an alternative break trip, uh, a retreat, um, or any of the birthright trips. And we ask questions they get at those four bubbles and others. So for example, we have data about, I can show you about Debbie when Debbie was running the GGILs. Please, like, to what, you know, please rate Debbie as a facilitator. And then after Debbie, I don't know who was it, it was like Emily Schrag or something. And you can actually compare now over about 10 years, and we actually know what, what good staff do and what mediocre staff do, and that's kind of cool. But there's also data about to what degree, it doesn't, we don't ask it this way, but did it increase your confidence? Did you go home and talk to your friends about it after the gatherings? We want to see if what we're talking about in these like small groups, if they just go back to their fraternity or sorority house and be like, did you know there's an idea of God, that God's in everything? Like this, they, you know, and they might be smoking pot, but like, instead of talking about, like, is the orange that I see the orange you see, which I feel like is a very college conversation, they're talking about, like, is there sparks of God in all of us, dude? Right? Sorry. That was like the tap house back in the day. Um, so that's how we track, and um, we don't track participants. So like the interns who host people for Shabbos dinner, we don't survey those interns. Uh, those people just show up because we just think that's creepy. So we have real impact data for about 550 of the 2,000 students that we're reaching, and we've got kind of breadth and frequency data for everybody that we're reaching, including non-Jewish students. And we're using it now in really serious ways to just be better. Five more minutes? OK. I'm going to just say one last thing about data. Again, I hope the data thing isn't killing you. We found other interesting things. Like Debbie went through this also. When Debbie started, she was the director of engagement. It was totally student-facing. And then she became the associate director. And she kept saying, like, I don't feel like I'm doing a good job. I don't feel like I'm doing a good job. And then Rachel Hollander, who's the associate director now, said the same thing. So what we found, actually, is that all of our middle management, who both work with students and um, have administrative responsibilities, engage about the same number of students, which is about like 130. Everybody who's just student-facing and doesn't have administrative engages about 250 students. So it's, like, it's not your imagination. It's not that you were doing a worse job. It's that your job shifted, 
and you weren't getting that positive feedback of knowing every single student when you walked down the campus green. Um, this, these are amazing tools, I think, to do our job better. And think of what a synagogue could do, where instead of just planning high holiday, you know, high holiday services, it was great, we had more people than we've ever had, that you would design it to think about, like, how does this connect the 2,000 people in this room to each other? If they don't make new friends, we didn't fully fulfill our mission today. If they don't learn something new, we didn't fulfill our mission. If it didn't increase their sense of confidence to Judaism, right? If they don't think of something that they could look back on in their lives, we haven't fulfilled our mission. And then what if we didn't think about high holidays as a, as a one-off, but you built in a plan because you had all this data of what comes next? What's the goal? So if 2,000 people come for Rosh Hashanah, how do you reach 1,500 of them throughout the next month, and, right? And then, and then, like, what's the light touches and the heavy touches and the transformative touches that you want for every single one of those people? You can plan it and, and develop the organizational resources to go that direction as opposed to what most of us do in the nonprofit world, which is put out fires all the time, right? Hillel's sacred chaos. We do whatever happens. There's a BDS thing coming. Oh, God, anti-Israel. All hands on deck. We've got we to defend Israel. And then, we, then it takes us a month to get back to what our goals were. This helps us stay more focused. There's a... There are diagrams and like real things in the book about like how synagogues or federations JCCs could do this. Um, so I was trying to be pragmatic, not that I have the answers, but I, I wanted to be like an outside voice, I think, to just nudge a little bit. Um, there's plenty of things that are bad about Penn Hill that we need to fix. You can come consult with us, and, and you'll nudge me because it's not you, and, and hopefully I can do a little bit of that for you while I'm here also. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.